Brock just said as I walked by, try to top that. So you're dismissed. No, I, I won't do that. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. There's, if you were in hour one, we ended with the Lord's soon return for his saints. Our citizenship is not here. It is in heaven that our lowly bodies will be transformed into his glorious body. We just sang, we have joy in everlasting life and seeing him face to face. This is going to happen someday. And that sunrise this morning made me think it might be today. And maybe it still will. But come Lord Jesus, what an incredible way to lead into studying God's word. What an incredible honor it is to be gathered together to study and collectively look at God's word as a body of believers. What an incredible thing. So welcome to Plainfield Bible Church this morning. Thank you for coming to worship with us. We enjoy fellowship here because we enjoy fellowship based on who our King is. It is in Jesus Christ, and that is the reason why we're here collectively together. There is no other motivation. There should be no other motivation but to, to worship the one who was crucified for us. What a beautiful thing that that is. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. We are going to finish Galatians today, I promise. Unless the Lord returns first, and then we'll finish it in heaven. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. As you turn there, when you get there, I will then pray for us, and we will jump into this beautiful passage. And um, I'll give you just a second to get there. Galatians chapter 6 is a culmination of what we have been studying for months. It is a final words. And as you see on the screen, I stole this from Pastor Kevin. I borrowed it. He told me to say it. Let's go with that. These are the last words, but more fittingly, these are lasting words. Not my line. That's pastor's, but it's a good one. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. What a great and powerful, majestic God that you are. There is no other God. There is no other king. There is no other power that deserves to be worshipped and praised. There is no one else who is sovereign. There is, no other, there is no other God that could possibly compete with you. You've created all things for your glory, for your will, for your purpose. You hold things together. And we know that not only have you created the things that are around us, and you've created uh, living creatures, and you've cr- created the universe, but you've created the way for us to be saved. You've, you've not just invented it, you're the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that we have that absolute assurance. We have that hope. And as we consider these final words, these lasting words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, they are also lasting words for us 2,000 years later. As we consider the culmination of this letter that has warned against adding anything to your cross, taking anything away from your cross. The clear explanation of what justification by grace through faith in you is, I pray that we can bring these things all together, these principles all together in a very practical and purposeful way in our lives today. Myself as the one who studied this this week, and you've convicted me over and over, to those who are hearing, both here present with us and those who are at home, those who will hear later on. We know that your word is powerful and it never comes back void. So we thank you for that. Soften our hearts. Mold us into what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Galatians chapter 6, you're there by now. I'm sure of that. Let's take a quick look at where we were last week. Where where a pastor left us off last week was Galatians chapter 6, 11 through 13. In Galatians 6, 11 through 13... Paul was challenging us, challenging them to not compromise the gospel for anything, for anything at all. Specifically in Galatians 6, what he was looking at in these verses are those Judaizers who were adding something to the gospel for their own pride, for their own ability to boast. Uh, very interesting, if you, if you look back there for a second, it says in Galatians 6, they desired, verse, excuse me, verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
that they can put something on you that maybe they can put a notch in their belt, that they can, they can put something on you that they can take a little glory away from the Lord and his cross. And there are those who may do that with the gospel. May that never be here. So we don't compromise, and we don't compromise not just for glory, but we don't compromise so that we're not being persecuted. That was another point that was brought up, that sometimes we will step back away from the uh, reproach and the, uh, the, the offense of the cross so that we won't face persecution. We were warned against that last week as well, and we, we were reminded yet once again that we understand what that wall has projected to us for so many weeks, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a great reminder. So that was last week, a culmination of this incredible study in the book of Galatians that we have had and what we have been going through. Here's where we're going today. The final words, these lasting words. Here's what we're going to see in verses 14. We're going to see boasting in the cross. What does that mean? Let's define it. Let's make sure we understand. Let's not throw in something that it shouldn't be there. What is boasting in the cross? Verses 15 and 16, there's a rule he mentions, and it's the new creation rule. What does that mean? What is that all about? Verse 17, bearing the marks, or more specifically, we'll see the brand of Jesus. And this is, this is an extremely moving thing to consider when we study the word in context. And then verse 18, in case you didn't catch it, it's all about grace. So that's where we're at today. Let's read our text through verses 14 through 18, and then we'll break this down. So coming off of last week, verse 14, here's what Paul says. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers. Amen. So this is where we are, Galatians 6, verse 14. And here's the very first point, boasting in the cross. Breaking down this passage once again, I'd like to break it down into A and to B. I have put up on the screen for you so that you can see these two translations, both the ESV and the NASB. The ESV says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The NASB says it's slightly different, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that second one. May this never be. We should never do this, that I would boast in anything in life other than Christ and Him crucified. Uh, first hour, we, as I mentioned at the beginning, we, we were hearing God's word and the encouragement of our citizenship and the fact that we will see him and when we see him we will be like him. These encouragements from Philippians and 1 John. Today, it marks two years ago today that my mother went to be with the Lord. And so I'm grinning from ear to ear, as Zach mentioned, when he started talking about that because that's the great hope that we have. Only we as believers, can hope in that. Only we as believers have that to look forward to. We have certainty. There's no doubt in our mind. And why is that? Because we boast in the cross. I don't, I don't think that way because my mother was such a good woman. She was, but not good enough. I don't think that way because she was such a good cook. She was a very good cook, but that's not enough. I don't think that way because she was a servant. She was, but she didn't serve enough. I think that way because she believed in Jesus and him crucified. She believed that she wasn't sufficient, she wasn't enough, and she put her faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Her boast was in the Lord. Because of that, as many of you know, she shared the gospel with me and I was so saved. That the Lord used my mother and her example, my father as well, but my mother to show me the way. An incredible thing because she boasted in the Lord. So we don't want to add anything to this. We certainly don't want to boast in anything other than this. And I think that's just an incredible way to think of this. Now let's consider that word boast. Here's the word 
And when we think of this, this is how it's, this is how it's pronounced. Kauhel me, or my. And this is a basic expression of praise, which doesn't always include the aspect of selfish pride. Not always. And in this case, it won't if applied correctly. Not always with selfish pride. But the same word can be used with selfish pride. This likely comes from the root, look at this, of neck. The word neck. Now that's kind of interesting when you consider this. So this is holding up your neck high. This is how we get the view or the the words of looking down on others. So that's the negative connotation. But you as believers, myself as a believer, we hold our head high because we boast in the cross. We boast in our Savior. We boast in the King that we have been singing about and praising and studying this morning already. already. Figuratively, it says, it refers to living with God-given confidence. That's a different kind of boasting. You're not boasting in what you are, what you've done, who you are, your righteousness, your confidence. The reason why you can hold your head up high is because you're looking up, not looking down. Because you're looking to what's coming. You're looking to what's promised, just as we've studied and we've, as we've sang about this morning. Paul's confidence is in, and his rejoicing is in, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the life-changing effect that it has had on his life. Now, we're going to see that that came at a cost, but his confidence was totally entwined with what he has experienced with Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says this, and we know this, verse 26, and why don't you turn there? I think it would be good for you to see the context. I'll give you just a moment. I wasn't planning on this, but I think it would be good. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Take a look at this context very quickly. I'll give you a second, but not much more. So get there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pick this up at verse 26 because I think you, I was, I was going to just describe this to you, but I think it's good to see the text. I want this to be a, a, a reset for us, a reset for us, because I think it's easy to take a look at the definition of boast. Consider that that's not necessarily negative, but I want you to also consider that so oftentimes it is, because we oftentimes go right back into it. And what Paul's doing here, God more specifically through Paul, is hitting the reset button for us so we remember who we are, where we came from. So we'll pick it up at verse 26 for context. For consider your calling, brethren, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Remember who you are. Remember how God saved you. Remember the status, the space, where you were when that happened. If Christ saved you, you weren't full of pride at that moment. You were at the end of yourself. If you're one of us, if you're one of the redeemed, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you were ruined before the cross. You realized who you were and who you stood or bowed before And you were nothing. You remember that? Do you remember that? God wants us to remind ourselves of who we are. But look at what God did. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may what? May boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 26 is critical for this, to understand verses 27 through 30 and 31, that we boast in the Lord because of our status, where we were, what we remember being, if you can take yourself back to that, totally broken and lost, Going the way of the world. That was you and that was me. And then he saved you. Not because you, you deserved it, but because of the unmerited favor that we will look at going forward today. Not many were wise. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. We know what we were. And we know what we all are. As you go forward in chap, in, into chapter 2, you're already there. Just stay there. I'll bring up the text. Chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It's not an impressive speech that's going to save you. 
It's not because of an order who's got the gifts and the talents that's going to save you. It's the word of God. It's the work of the cross. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, the boasting for even leadership in churches, even those who speak and who may be gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach and preach the word, their boasting is not in those talents. Their boasting is not in those gifts. Their boasting is in the one who, who empowers them to do so. The Holy Spirit that is within them to be able to preach and teach and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Paul understood it. We have to understand this because here's the reality, folks. Here's the reality. As you walk out of these doors today, you're going to go into your lives, into the people that you know, these divine encounters that God is putting in your lives, in your subdivision, at your work, amongst your family members, amongst the lost. And he is also empowering you, but not out of pride, not out of your talents and your abilities, but out of the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you to proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect. This is for all of us. This is an incredible thing. So we need to understand what we're boasting in. A little further in 1 Corinthians, feel free to go down there too, to chapter 9, but I'll bring it up here for you. As you go to chapter 9, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you'll remember in chapter 1, he says that the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, isn't it? But it for us, for the believer... It's the power of God. So as we think of this going forward, chapter 9, verse 16, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. And I want to just stop there for a moment. It shouldn't be if, should it? It shouldn't be if I preach the gospel. You will if you're in Christ because it's your calling. Now, your holy calling is salvation, but then we know we have been, we have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel. So think about this. Paul is telling us, if I am commissioned to do this, and he is and you are, that gives you no ground for boasting. Notice what he says. I just love this passage. Necessity is laid upon me. A divine compulsion, Paul would say. This is what he has to do. It's driving him. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I'm, in, I w- I'm still entrusted with stewardship. This is so reminiscent of Jeremiah's heart. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire inside of me. Do you feel that? When you have resisted proclaiming the gospel, go back to last week, because you didn't want to be persecuted, and you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to deliver the gospel, the life-changing gospel, that would, the, the, the thing that that person who you spoke to desperately needed, and you knew it, and you didn't do it. We've all been in those situations. We've, I'm a Bible teacher by trade, and I've been in that situation more times than I'd like to admit. And did you feel a burning inside of you? Did you feel a conviction inside of you? that was burning in your bones, as Jeremiah would say. And he says, I'm weary with holding it in. I've just told a student this week who was asking me about their walk with Christ and how they were struggling with it and how they were just miserable. And I said, well, you know, in my my time teaching teenagers, the most miserable of the teenagers are the ones who are believers who aren't walking with the Lord. They're just miserable because there's burning inside of them that they're not dealing with. They're not getting out what they, the Holy Spirit is convicting them to get out. They're not, they're not fulfilling the calling that God has commissioned them to, to take. They aren't doing what they're called to do. And Christian, that's for us today too. Is it burning within you? That's good. Now let it out. Let that fire flow because that's exactly what you're called to. That's what we boast in. And there's nothing in us. This is the Holy Spirit working through us. Hmm, that's an incredible thing. Now, the second part of this verse, notice what he says. So we don't boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians 6, back to Galatians for a moment, 14b, the second half of this verse. 
So he says, I accept the cross of our, I boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Nasby says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is a very, very peculiar statement. To be crucified to me and I to the world. Or the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Very interesting. Dr. Andy Wood says it this way. The world here is cosmos. And this is the satanically energized system of philosophy that seeks to alienate the believer's affection from God. To separate you from him. We are in the midst of this world or cosmos that every single day of our natural life will war against your mind and thought life if left unguarded. The demonic system of the world intends to separate you from the truth of Christ found in his word. Paul has lost interest in the world, and the world has lost interest in Paul. He could not have achieved this through his own efforts or striving, but it was a benefit that was accrued to him because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Just what we led into. When one is redeemed and begins walking with the Lord, the alluring temptations of the world become less attractive. That's what this means. When we look at this passage and we consider to be separated or to be crucified, that the world has been crucified to me, it's just not as good as it used to be. It's, it's just not as fulfilling. It, it just doesn't fill the gap. You've heard that old saying that everyone has a Christ-sized hole in their heart. There's no doubt about it that only Christ can fill. There's no question that that is true And that's exactly what we see here. And as you walk with the Lord, as you begin to do what His Word is telling you to do, as you continue to walk and become sanctified, we know that the world just becomes less interesting. And I'm guessing that in your own walk with Christ, you've noticed that. That you once thought things were a whole lot more interesting in the world than you do today. As a matter of fact, you would say that the things you once loved, you now hate. As you look at the world and you think about the way you once were and you think about those things that you pursued, now you actively consider those things an enemy of the cross. You begin to love what Christ loves and you begin to hate what he hates. Now, of course, we we occasionally will fall back to some of those bad habits. But generally speaking, as a believer in Christ, you begin to see yourself being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That is definitively true. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6 about this. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that's the baptism of Christ's blood on us, not water baptism, that's what happened at the cross, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's not just resurrection as we heard in hour one. It's not just glorification as we heard about hour one, but it's walking different now. This is also sanctification. There is a new quality and a new character to our lives that wasn't there before. And it's miraculous. It's divine. It comes from above. It has no room for boasting in ourselves. I should have put this picture up here. There's a family friend of ours named Rod Franklin. He was a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force during Vietnam. He flew, and I have a picture of him in front of his F-4 Phantom. And I thought about it when I was sitting there. I should have brought that up. That would have been interesting. But then you may have just been staring at the jet and not listening to me. So maybe it's for the best. He was not a believer when he went into combat. And if I recall his testimony correctly, and I've heard it several times, he was maybe in his 15th to 16th sortie, and he came back from flying his mission with his buddies. And as was normal, they would go out drinking, have a good time after the debrief. But one of his friends kept pursuing him, pushing him to come to Bible study just consistently doing what we've been talking about this morning, consistently talking about the gospel that transforms lives and changes lives, encouraging him, and he finally came to this service, this Bible study. And he says he doesn't remember exactly what happened. He knows the gospel was, was preached. He knows he heard it. And he, knows something, he knew something had changed in him. But he didn't know what happened. But the next day, all of a sudden, he was different. 
He believed on the Lord. He didn't understand everything, but he believed on what Christ did. He believed on what he heard in the gospel. He clearly understood that he was a sinner that needed a Savior, and his life was different. He said he, he, he didn't talk the same. He suddenly didn't think the same. He approached everything in life differently. He was suddenly transformed. Now, he would tell you, if, if he were here to give this testimony, his sanctification process had just begun. He was a new man. He was a new creation, but God continued to work in him. God was going to continue to do his transforming work in him, but there was a marked difference. That's what happened to every one of us. Now, I wasn't flying fighter missions in Vietnam, living this horrific life, but it happened to me too when I was a little boy, and it happened to you too. You were going one way, you heard the gospel, and then you were going another. You were one thing, you heard the gospel, and then you were something entirely different. Praise be to God for that. And here you sit, understanding his word even more, walking in him as you should, and that's what we're called to do. So this continued thought, we see this in 1 John 5, 4 through 5, and we'll be in 1 John a little bit later on today too. Everyone who has been born of God, I'm going to come back to this passage later, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You're an overcomer. You've been born of God. You're a whole new person. Colossians 2 tells us that if you were with Christ, you died to these elemental spirits of the world, these human philosophies, precepts, ideas. You've died to those. And if, if you've died to those, you are now alive to Christ. That these things are not what you are anymore. You've been born of God. You're brand new. Anybody who is that way is now an overcomer. You're not living the way you once were. You're not living in the fashion in, the, in which you once w- walked. We're not that way anymore. So as we continue on to chapter, in chapter 6, verse 15, back to Galatians 6, Here's what Paul continues to write. So we're different than the world. The world's not interested in us, and we're not interested in them. We don't see things eye to eye, and this is all because of this. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what counts. Now, I won't go back and belabor the point about circumcision again for the hundredth time. I know we've heard about this a lot. I get that. You say, hey, I get it. Sign me up. Circumcision isn't necessary. I understand this. But let's just understand what we've also studied and learned over these last several months. This is anything, any self-righteousness you have attached to your salvation. Any rule, anything that you've done that you think impresses the Lord. Anything that you do that makes you think in your mind, I kind of need Jesus, but I'm pretty good. Anything like that is what we're talking about here. What we're dealing with here is that counts for nothing. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. I'll repeat that. Whatever you've done that you think is impressing your Savior, that you've done on your own strength and your own power and your own might, filthy rags, not impressed. He's impressed with your obedience to him and a faithful heart because you fear him and love him and are broken before him. That's what counts, the new creation. And notice, uh, but a new creation is the rule. He says in verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, the rule that Jesus and Jesus only is what you live by. Jesus and his redemption of you. Jesus and his transformation of you. Jesus and his rebirth of you is all that counts. And he says this, as for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. We'll get to those pieces later. Look at the NASB here. Those who will walk by this rule. Did you notice that? I like that too. You will. God is going to prompt you. This divine compulsion that Paul spoke of earlier, this burning within inside your bones that Jeremiah referenced, If you're in Christ, you will be doing this. He is going to sanctify you at one level or another. Without question, that's going to happen. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. We'll be in verse 11. 
for context as you get there, I want you to consider in verse 6 of Colossians 2. It tells us, he warns us, Paul tells the church that as you have, if you've received Christ, as you've received Christ, you should now walk in him. Verse 8 tells us, reminds us, don't be taken captive to the world's philosophies. There's action that needs to take place in your life to not do this, not fall into this. So keep, keep an eye on the context here. Picking this up at verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2, here's what it says. And if you've been filled in him who is the head and head of all rule and authority, in him also you were circumcised. This isn't physical circumcision. With a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, he circumcised your heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I want you to consider this. Paul is not saying here that the law isn't good. He's saying it was really good. What it did was show you your failures. It was a mirror to show you and I how, fall, how fallen we are and how short we are of attaining his glory or reaching his righteousness. We can't do it. It's clearly an offense to the Lord when we violate his law. And so because of that, all of us are separated. All of us are enemies. We have these trespasses. And he canceled that debt. He took that from us, put it on himself. The great exchange took place. You offered him your sin. He gave you his righteousness. And that he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. Amazing that he did that for you and for me. This is this circumcision that is now a new life. You're something different than you once were. The law and all of the regulations with it pointed us to the cross. It pointed us to the Messiah. It told us what we needed. This is the, the desperation that we were in. But it's the law that told us where we fell short. And it was in a variety of ways. Circumcision of the heart is what matters. The new creation is what matters. Salvation by Jesus alone is what matters. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from you? No, that's not what it says. All this is from your righteousness? Nope. All this is from the law? Uh-uh. It's from God. All of this, that new creation, what happened to you, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This happened. By the way, this passage is taken out of context because of the word reconciliation so often. That this is somehow, they'll just take that last bit of this and say, this is about us getting along. No, no, you were an enemy of God because of your shortcomings, because of your failures, because of your trespasses. You were his enemy, and he made you his brother. He made you his son. You made, he made you his co-heir, and you get to tell people that they can have the same. That's the reconciliation. We certainly should get along. There are other passages for that. This is about you being reconciled to the almighty, all-knowing, providential, all-powerful God that you once were an enemy of. Amazing thing to consider. This phrase, new creation, is described as something that is created at a qualitatively new level of excellence. That is not my words. I stole that from John MacArthur, if you're wondering. You're not that smart. You're right. Qualitatively new level of excellence. I love that, though. You're a whole different thing. This is a regeneration from one thing to another, a rebirth. Um, you've heard it referenced a few times. We were at a leader's retreat a few weeks ago, and we're playing euchre. By the way, just mentioning that you playing cards from a pulpit one time or another in our country might have gotten you thrown right out of the church. But we were playing euchre, in case that offends you. And we were, we were um, talking. Um, it's the longest euchre game of in history, probably, because theological discussions were coming up a lot. 
And Jim Bryan was mentioning his testimony, and he, he really described this. And he was talking about how the Lord changed him in a moment, that he was just playing a game for a while. He was just kind of getting along, going along, kind of going with the flow, and then the Lord changed him. And within the midst of this, this game, Isaiah said, that's 2 Corinthians 5.17, isn't it? And we all just shook our heads and smiled. That's an incredible thing. And it didn't just happen to Jim, and it didn't just happen to Isaiah, it didn't just happen to Dave, and it didn't just happen to me. Those are the four people playing that game. If you're in Christ, it happened to you too. You're a new creation too. All of a sudden, you became qualitatively new and qualitatively excellent compared to what you once were because of what Jesus Christ did, because of the rebirth and the new birth. And I didn't ask Jim if I could tell that story, but I assume he didn't mind because he's qualitatively more excellent than he was before, so I'm sure he will accept that. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons. Creatures into sons. Not simply to produce a better man or better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. You're a whole different animal than what you once were. Glenn Spencer says this, a creation of God's redemptive work is what this is. He is a new creature with a new director, a new determination, a new demeanor, new delights, new desires, and new destiny. Notice all the D's in there if you want to remember those. I love that. Director, determination, demeanor, delights, desires, and destiny. If our life is not different since we profess Christ as God our Savior... We need to examine our life in light of God's word. What he means by that is, do you really know him? Does he know you? Have you really read the gospel? Do you understand the cost? Do you really know what this is? Maybe look back in the word of God because we know this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. If this isn't you, if you don't have a new demeanor, if you don't have new delights, if you don't have new desires, if you don't have a new destiny, and praise be to God, that destiny is great. If that's not you, you need to get back in the Word. You need to make sure that it is. You need to consider this. Here's what Peter says about this new creation. And this is coming off of the concept that both he, John, and Jesus make reference to a new birth that we've heard about a few times today. First Peter chapter 1 says this, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Who through him are believers in God, that is. So that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, there it is. This is the John 3 conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You need to be born again. The term here really means born from above. That this is a dynamic, supernatural, divine, eternal change. This is a born from above because it's the only place it could happen from. And notice how he qualifies that. Not of perishable seed, that's a temporary but of imperishable, through the living and abiding, and notice again the connection, word of God. That's where it came from. We know the gospel because it was written down in a divine way in the, the book that is sitting in your lap right now. That is a supernatural thing. How do you hold the word of God? How do you consider the word of God? Do you understand that you've been born again, born from above, Because the gospel has been passed down from generation to generation, and here you sit. And whoever shared the gospel with you based it on the word of God. How special that is. So this word of God, this new imperishable life, this born from above, this is a spiritual life implanted by the Holy Spirit to produce the new birth and the unfailing, permanent hope that we have in the Lord's return and our glorification. It is coming, and it's coming soon, and he's going to mold us until that time comes. Turn to 1 John, please. We're going to do a little walk through 1 John. And I thought about just putting these passages up here, but I'm going to make you do a little work, keep you awake. Go to 1 John. 1 John. As a matter of fact, I had them up here, and I took them off. 
so that we could look at this with this. As I thought about coming off of this, this idea that the Word of God is so powerful, it's good to be in there, and I love to hear the pages turn. So let's just do a little quick walk through 1 John. This concept of the new creation rule. If this is you, remember what Paul was telling to the, to the church there in Galatia. If this rule is yours, this rule looks like this. Now, I'm not hitting every single, every single phrase that, that Paul, or excuse me, John uses here that is similar to this, but I'm, I want to show you some of them. 1 John 2. I don't hear the pages anymore, so I think we're all there. 1 John 2, starting at verse 29, here's what it says. Oh, verse 28, rather. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. True believers look forward to his return. True believers get excited when they hear about it. True believers are longing for the Lord's return as Paul did and as he described in 2 Timothy. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been, been, been born of him. Born again. Same phraseology, really. Born from above. If you desire to do what he says, you've been born again. Born from above. Jesus would tell his apostles that there is no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, and you're my friends if you do what I command you. You desire to obey him and to practice righteousness without question. Go to chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, starting at verse 7. We see this a few times in 1 John 3, starting at verse 7. Here's what he says. Little children, by the way, that's believers. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Because of him, you can do this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We've already heard that today. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God, born born again, born from above. Now this does not mean that Christians stop sinning the moment they're redeemed. If so, there isn't a single one in here, and I've never met one in my life. And somebody's getting theirs out there right now. Okay? That doesn't mean that. It means a practice of sinning is habitual, that you have no victory and have no desire to have victory over sin. It means that you are taking this grace that we claim so strongly, and you're cheapening it into saying, it's a free ticket to do what I want, because I can do what I want, by grace I am saved. If that's your mindset, you're not born again. You're not born of God. Your desire isn't to please Him. Your desire is not to pursue righteousness. Your desire is to have both sides of the plate. You want both, both the, the, the good and the bad. You want to continue to pursue the wickedness that Christ died for, and yet embrace His love and His redemption and His mercy. That doesn't work. The believer detests the sin that he struggles with or she struggles with. The believer, as David has over the last several weeks in the book of Psalms, is broken and ruined before his own sin. The believer looks at his sin and looks at the reflection of of himself and, and wishes, desires for the glorification. He longs for the Lord's return, not just to, just to see loved ones, not just to have all the pain go away. He or she longs for the Lord's return so that the, the weight of sin is totally removed, so that temptation is gone, that the warring of the flesh that Paul speaks of in Romans 7 is no longer waging. That's what it is. That's what Paul or John is talking about here. So we look at our lives and we say we're different. We don't want to act that way. We want to be what he is. That's what we desire. That's what we should see in our own lives. Chapter 4, 1 John 3, 4, verse 7, we see it again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you love the fellow believers around you? Do you love those who love Christ? Jesus said that they will know that you're mine, that you're my disciples. Now, modern day, we say they'll know you're Christians by your love for other Christians, for one another. Are you born of God? Are you born from above? Are you a new creation? Do you love the people that are around us, around you, that also claim Christ? Have you got that heavenly 
Father-driven, Son-driven, Holy Spirit-driven righteousness? Is that the new nature you have? And then finally, let's go to 1 John 5. You notice that John's got a, a bit of a pattern going on here. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whatever has been born of him. We love Christ, we love him, we love the Father, and we love those around us that claim Christ as well. Skipping on ahead in chapter 4, for verse 4, chapter 5 rather, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We heard that earlier, that our faith in Christ and Christ alone is how we are overcomers. Verse 5, who it is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The true believer The one who is born from above that is a new creation that lives by that rule does not doubt Christ as Messiah. That one looks to the Savior and with endurance throughout his or her lifetime, no matter the circumstances, no matter the trouble that comes your way, believes that Jesus is the Christ. And then one more, 5.18. Notice this consistency in John's writing. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The true believer has a life of sin and repentance, has a life of fall and study the word more, has a life of temptation and crying out for help, has a life of battle, has has the, the, the nature of them that they go to war with their sin, as Piper mentioned so well. That's what we see. So this is being born from above. We've got one more word to look at with respect to this. And we see this in a few places. And that is the sanctification process that is going. You're a new person. You're a new creation. You're a wholly different thing. Something more excellent. But there's also something else going on. This doesn't happen overnight uh, with regards to sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformed here it is metamorpho. And of clearly you can see that the English word of metamorphosis comes from this. This is changing form in keeping with inner reality. The outward form of you is changing into what's on the inside of you. And we know if you're redeemed, it's the Holy Spirit inside of you. The perfect Holy Spirit who is transforming you into one degree of glory to another. All of you are walking with the Lord, some walking with the Lord for much longer than some of, some of the rest of us. And we're all in these different places. And actually, depending on your life and your experiences and how you've reacted to them and how you've responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as you read the Word and you go through troubles, God is transforming all of us into one level of glory to another. But all into his likeness, all to that ultimate goal. And none of you have perfected this just yet. But we're all in this, in this it's somewhere along the levels of becoming more like Christ, transforming what's on the, on the outside to be more like what's on the inside, properly transformed after being with, transfigured. The same word was used at the Mount of Transfiguration when speaking of Christ giving his glorified body before the resurrection, where the apostles, at least the three, could see that just at the beginning. The last piece of this says this. If you recall back to Galatians chapter 6, that he, those who, who abide in this rule, embrace this rule, the new creation rule, he is extending to them peace and mercy. Grace, peace, and mercy. So here's what we see of the believer, Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ and Christ alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. We have peace within our inner being. I can tell you, I don't recall every single thing that happened to me 40-some years ago when the Lord saved me, but I remember peace. I remember being troubled and concerned and petrified and knowing that I was all alone. And then I remember suddenly that went away because my Savior saved me and I believed it. And he came into my heart and he changed my heart and he transformed my heart and gave me a brand new heart. That's an incredible thing. 
And I remember that even as a young boy. Gets me emotional to think about that. I went from petrified in fear of my own judgment, even as a young boy, to understanding that the debt had been paid. And I didn't understand much, but I understood that. There was peace in my life. And then mercy, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Undeserved, you deserved hell, death, so did I. But he showed you mercy. He gave you what you didn't deserve and kept you from the things that you did. Mercy was extended to you. Man. And then Paul ends this in 17 and 18 with a reminder for all of us. Maybe a stark reminder. Maybe it's a sobering reminder of what could come. But here's what he says in Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The NASB puts it this way, the brand marks of Jesus. Now, maybe you've never really thought about this. i got to be honest. I've thought about it on the surface when I've read through that passage, and I understood this was the beatings he took, the, the scars that he had, the bruises, the broken bones, and we'll talk about some of that. But the real thing here, what it really means is a little deeper than that. This word comes from the Greek word stigmata, and here's what it means. The mark or brand, it's a, a brand that was burned into the skin. And this was used of slaves in the New Testament era. A brand proving that they were owned by their master. His brand. That burning into the skin. That's more than just taking a beating for Christ. You're marked as his. You once were your own. You once were really the world's cosmos but now you're his and he's branded that onto you and this this can come in a a variety of ways Uh, in uh, decision magazine i had found this article from 06 and i believe billy graham penned it but i'm giving him credit i don't know if it was in his magazine it says this the apostle paul i'll put it up on the screen said i bear in my body the brand marks of the lord jesus in other words paul said that he bore in his body the branding marks of a slave When he called himself a servant of Jesus Christ, he didn't mean a paid worker, as the word connotes today. He meant a slave in utter subjection to the master. But this subjection is born out of love and devotion to Christ, and it ultimately brings liberty. In the ancient world, three classes of persons were branded on their bodies, soldiers, slaves, and devotees. When Paul declared that on his body were the marks of Jesus, he referred to the scars that had been left by the scourgings, the stonings, the, uh, the vigils, the turmoil and that he endured for the sake of Christ. They showed that he belonged wholly to Christ, his master. He was a soldier, a slave, and a devotee. And that is our plight too. Just as a quick review from 2 Corinthians 11, this is a list that, was, that he penned 10 years before his death. You can add to that list. I'm not going to read all of these what Paul went through for the name of Jesus. And as you look at that list that's from 2 Corinthians 11, add a few more that you may know that Paul went through in the next 10 years of his life before the Lord took him home through martyrdom. You may look at that and say, well, I've never been through any of that. And I will say, yet, it may come. I don't know. But there are things that are marking your life if you've walked with Christ. Because Paul reminds us that if you intend to live a godly life in Christ, you will, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. So what is that persecution for you? What is that persecution for me? What does that look like? There's a variety of things it could look like. It could be social marks. You could have paid a price socially. You may have lost friends. You may have lost relationships. There may be some scars and some brands that mark you as one of Christ because He's divided homes and families. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe you've been scarred emotionally. You've been attacked. Maybe, maybe those have come at you because of the name of Christ, because you've held strong to the word. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's, maybe it's in your job. It's vocational. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost money. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's physical. It's possible. Certainly relational and familial for many. Remember Christ said that I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'll divide families. 
There is a cost to walking with Jesus. There's a cost. You are going to bear the brand marks of Christ if you walk with him. You will bear the scars. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. I don't know. My guess is it may not be this hefty. It may not be this strong, but it may be. And we need to be willing and prepared to do this. And why? Notice what we see. Paul rejoiced in this. He says in Colossians 1, where we were earlier, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. You might read that and say, Christ isn't lacking in anything. What Paul's saying here is, Christ died, rose again, and ascended. And if they could still persecute him, they would, if he were still here. But he isn't, and you are, and you're his representative. And if they hated him, John 15, they're going to hate you too. What Paul is saying here isn't he's somehow fulfilling something Christ couldn't. Paul knew very well what he was talking about here. Remember what Christ told him on the road to Damascus. Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus was in heaven at this point. He was persecuting his church, which means he was persecuting Jesus. And that's true for you too. Paul is saying, I'm now switching roles. I'm the one being persecuted, not the one persecuting. Paul knew what he was talking about. And he was on the other side of this. He was on the other side of what Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 9 looked like. So we should rejoice in it. Why? Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter 4. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. What an honor. If you are going to lose something for Christ, if there is a cost, and there will be, if you have to sacrifice, what an honor to do that for the name of Jesus Christ. We already know and have established there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to impress him. But when he gives you and, and gives you the gift to suffer for him, what an honor. The apostles left after taking a beating rejoicing that they were able to, to take this beating for the Lord. What an incredible thing. This is all from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. What an honor it is to do this for the name of Jesus. These scars, these battle scars, these marks of the Lord, these brandings of the Lord, this is very foreign to the way we think today. This is very foreign in the way we would want to believe that things work today. You're going to hear in other churches a different type of gospel where you put your faith in Christ, and it's easy from now on. It's just sunshine and roses. He's going to bless you, make you rich, everything's perfect, but that's not how it really is. That's not what we're called to. We don't find that in the New Testament anywhere. We don't see that anywhere in the lives of the apostles. We don't see that in the life of Christ. He was born in, a, in and amongst animals, and his very first bed was a feeding trough. He spent most of his life in a poor family. He spent three years of his ministry homeless. He was crucified with, with prisoners and those who were of ill repute. He was then buried in somebody else's tomb, the king of all glory. Our God lived a very humble and difficult life, persecuted all along the way and suffered horribly by the hands of the cosmos, the world. And we expect better. We should expect the same, and that's what we're called to. We're called to something bigger, and let's finish this. His last words and lasting words, in case you didn't catch it, it's all about grace. Galatians six eighteen, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, brethren, amen. That's what we see. Very interesting way he writes this. He does this three different times, other than Galatians 6, where he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, you might think, why? Why spirit? Why not just me? Well, I would say this. Paul's been spending his time talking about his life and his sacrifice here in the previous, previous verse and the difficulties and the brand marks he's taken. He doesn't put a whole lot of uh, value in the body he is in at that moment. By the time he gets to the end of his life, some uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, he is a broken, alone, ruined man in Second Timothy. And we hear that in his words. He doesn't put a lot of value in his physical life that he has. Where he puts his value is in his soul, who he eternally is, who he eternally will be. Yes, he's looking forward to a glorified body. He writes about that more than anyone else. But it's our spirit. It's who we really are. It's our soul. It's that eternal piece of us 
that will never go away that we, were, we should be, really be considering and that what we should consider as being important. Here's what we see it. We see it in three different other places, as I mentioned. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he says to the church in Philippi at the end of that book. At the end of Philemon, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit at the end of that book, that letter. Second Timothy 4, his last, the Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. He says it three other times other than Galatians. He likes this conclusion. He understands that we should be looking at the eternal rather than the temporal. Mind's off the body and it's on the soul. It's on the forever and not the momentary. That's what God's looking at. It's an amazing thing. So what is this grace? Well, I couldn't find a better definition than this one. And here's where we're going to end. I know it's long, but I'm going to read it. And um, I think it, it should be beneficial to you. Helps to ground you with what we've been talking about for months. Look at what Macar- how MacArthur puts this. This is littered with Scripture. Grace is not a dormant or abstract quality, but a dynamic, active, working principle. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instruction to us. Titus 2. It is not some kind of ethereal blessing that lies idle until we appropriate it. Grace is God's sovereign initiative to sinners. Ephesians 1. Grace is not a one-time event in the Christian experience. We stand in grace. The entire Christian life is driven and empowered by grace. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Hebrews 13. Peter said we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3. Thus, we could properly define grace as the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. Even Paul's final benediction, this one here that we just read, implicitly extols the superiority of the gospel of grace over man-made systems of works-based righteousness. That's why he ends this way. It's about grace. It's about walking in grace. And as we consider what we're about to do, as I transition into what we are about to partake in as believers. I'd like you to turn to Titus chapter 2. In MacArthur's definition, he just referenced it. But I think this will set our hearts up properly. And believer, you need to have your heart set properly before you encounter what we're about to encounter. In Titus chapter 2, as, as I've already mentioned, it's already been quoted What we see is a lot about who Christ is and what he's done. We see a lot about his nature, but specifically what he did for you 2,000 years ago is really critical. Titus 2 verse 11 says this as we transition. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. No, that's all people who believe training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. As we consider the sufferings, the sacrifice, the incredible gift that was given to us at the cross, as we consider what Christ went through, he is telling us in Titus chapter 2, as we wait for his appearing, as we consider what he he did for us, that we understand that we now take part in this. And as you approach this table, as you consider the sacrifice He's asking you to kind of look at your own life, to examine your life, to take a look at what you've been doing this week even, how your, where your heart has been this week, where are your study habits this week, how have you been proclaiming the name of Jesus this week, have you been accomplishing his will this week? And I'll say that I can confess for all of us, not every time, not every moment, we've all had some weaknesses this week. And I would say as as we prepare our hearts, it's time to confess those to the Lord. He's asking you in Titus chapter 2 to purify your heart. He's going to do that. He wants to do that through, through His Holy Spirit and His Word. 
But he's purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As we consider this table we're about to approach, the idea is to remember what he's done. Remember the suffering, yes. Remember the separation from the Father, yes. Remember the sacrifice, but remember what he's done and what he intends to do in your life next week. That he is desiring for you to be purified, that he's going to do through you, through his Holy Spirit, and that you're to be zealous for good works this week. As we approach this table, I want you to consider what that might mean for you as we consider this. So if you would grab your... The bread, take some time to take that out of the, the cup. It's a little challenging now with the new, the new way we do that, but take your